everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. I, th- I just think it's crude to do that and not in the same breath do every single thing that we can in our power to right those wrongs. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to Conversations. Every show host has had an encounter with someone who just has to be on their show. Well, a little over a year ago, my niece brought me to a TEDx talk at Onondaga Community College, where she attended at the time. The speakers all gave great presentations, but one young lady stood out among the group. And while she was poised and articulate, her passion for her community is what won me over. Hi, my name is Decca Danso. Community-wise, I serve as the president of the Urban Jobs Task Force, and then I just I just do a lot in the community. I would just call myself a, con- a concerned Syracuse resident. Okay, well, Decca, um, welcome to Conversations. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you here as my guest. I want to start talking about, because you mentioned the Urban Jobs Task Force, and I know that you have quite a rich history uh, in terms of organizing here in the Syracuse area. And I'd like you to begin by telling us how you became involved in organizing. Okay. Well, I guess really it came out of uh, my passion for wanting to help people who are poor because I grew up in extreme poverty here. Um, And I just, you know, as I be came educated and as I, you know, got out there in the workforce and as I just, you know, uh, grew and mature and starting to get a little bit more wisdom, whatever that means at, at my young age <laughs> at this time, um, I just started to realize the structural violence against poor people, um, especially minorities and especially black people as well as indigenous folks. And I've I was just like, man, like, it's like, once you, um, learn about it, it's like, you can't sit back and not do anything. So I, I guess, you know, I've always, um, volunteered around the community. I've been volunteering since, since I was a teenager. So I've always had, um, a heart to kind of volunteer and, and give back as I was moving along. But, um, you know, I guess once you realize the need for people to do more and to really step up and to organize, you know, if it's within you, you, you do it. So it was never like, there was never like a, a day that I just made a choice. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, it's like, I just, I just came in got into stuff and you just get sucked right in. Interesting. No, that's, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So your involvement ultimately led to you becoming president of the Urban Jobs Task Force. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that happened. Um, so it was, so I, I said, I, you know, I really care about issues of poverty. So at the time, um, this was like maybe five or six years ago, I think maybe six years ago, there was an event happening um, at Syracuse University where I worked at the time part-time. Um, and they were having a a seminar on poverty. And so at this time, I had already graduated college, um, and I was kind of struggling to find a full-time job. I still hadn't, I still hadn't found a full-time job. Um, so there was this seminar, and, you know, there were a bunch of people there 
um, that were kind of talking about poverty, but it really kind of was going in circles. Like, they, I could tell that, like, many of the people in the room must not have had experience in this, you know, with poverty and, you know, the causes of it and et cetera. Um, and these are, you know, a room full of academics or staff that work in ac- academia. So, you know, I stood up and I started talking about how, you know, I'm like, well, they have all these first generation programs for college student, uh, you know, for underrepresented students. But what they don't do after we graduate with this bachelor's degree, they don't help us out after. And, you know, the vast majority of us don't know how to effectively access the limited opportunities that there are out there for us. I'm like, so, you know, they kind of they push you through college and then afterwards they don't share with how nepotism works and you know you don't have anybody to help you um walk you through kind of navigating this this job search so many of us will end up you know working uh jobs that that our degree has nothing to do with you know low-skilled jobs um you know jobs really that we shouldn't be working but we can't find a job that we're qualified for otherwise so afterwards, um, Aggie, who was one of the co-founders of the Urban Jobs Task Force, which has been around for almost 10 years now, mm. she says, she comes up to me after, and she's like, you know, yeah, she's like, there's just not enough, you know, jobs for people, um, you know, she's like, the market isn't the same, and, you know, she's kind of just telling me about this stuff, and she was like, you know, I really appreciated what she said. It's like, so we have this group called the Urban Jobs Task Force, and we kind of, we fight for equal access to job opportunities, but that is one of our areas of interest, our college graduates who come from an underserved background, just really minorities, period. So, you know, kind of trying to sell me on joining the group that would be, you know, really just out here fighting for jobs, because the mission of the Urban Jobs Task Force is to advocate for equal access to employment opportunities, for residents in the city of Syracuse, especially minorities. So she was, you know, trying to sell me on joining the group, and I was just looking at her, and I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, you don't really have to tell me anymore. I'll, I'll come to the meeting. Like, I'll show up. Um, and so then I came, and really, you know, I, I listened for at least the first year and a half. It's very um, technical, and I guess, like, nuanced, kind of some of the stuff that we work on. You know, it's really heavy policy work it's we do i would say we do less organizing in that group more of advocacy but me as a person overall in the community i do a lot of organizing and urban jobs task force will usually be a part of that um so i was in a group for about a a year and a half i was just kind of listening kind of seeing what was going on eventually i joined the board um and i was on that for a little while and then that um, our former president Ricky Brown um, became the president Um, he asked me if I would be the vice president along with him so that we could have leaders of color because for a long time um, you know there was really people had an issue in the community that the urban jobs task force is is most you know is out here fighting um, with its particular interest to black and brown folks but the leadership is not black and brown, even though we're a, vo- we're a volunteer organization, so nobody gets paid to do any of this work. And I think that people don't, uh, I, don't I don't know, I guess people don't think about how much free time that people have, and usually people of color, I don't, I don't know about you, but we've got a lot of extra stuff going on. So um, he asked me to be the vice president along with him, and so I did. And then, um, and we, we were voted in by the organization and and then it was about a couple months later 
um, that he had to end up stepping down. It was just, there was just a lot going on. Nothing, you know, nothing bad happened. No, you know, nothing like that. Um, But he just ended up having to step down, you know, had other stuff going on. And I, um, due to the bylaws, I had to be the president. So, right right then that day. So I was not expecting that. I did not sign up for the responsibility. Um, But there I was. And, you know, I think it was... I, you know, I think everything was a blessing in disguise. I think that we've done great under um, my leadership and I've learned a lot so far. So I'm actually grateful to be given the service to the community because I, I really have learned and grown so much in the process. You know, Decca, there's there are a lot of issues going on right now. I mean, we have uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we've got the discovery here in Central New York of Black Lives Matter and that movement and these are just recent things that have, have transpired here in central new york not to mention all of these other pre-existing issues which of all of these issues do do you personally find most pressing and why um to me i think the issue of id1 um the re- reconstruction whatever they want to call it tearing down putting back up saving whatever ended up happening to it. Um, the I-81 Viaduct Project, which has confirmed that we know something will be happening to it. We still, we're still not uh, clear on what, but we know something will be happening to it um, by way of federal funding um, and administration of the New York State Department of Transportation. So to me, I think that's the most pressing thing, and the reason why is because it's going to affect so many facets um, of our daily life and on a large scale. It's not going to just affect, you know, certain individuals. I think this will affect the city and the county and honestly this region as a whole. Um, And those specific facets would be uh, transportation, jobs, travel, um, kind of economic inclusion, contracts, participation, what else? I don't want to be missing anything. Oh, housing, um, you know, the environment. Certainly. And so I, and there, there is more. But the, those are, even just naming those, those are very major things that affect, that affect our lives on a daily basis. And I don't understand why um, everyone is not talking about this every single day. What I remember that at the time, and I think, and you can let me know if you remember this too, okay. that when you know, probably for the last few years, there was a lot of attention around what was going to be the option of the rebuild. Mm -hmm. Or was it going to be the same as right now? Were they going to do um, a community grid? Were they going to do, you know, a tunnel version? Were they going to do a hybrid? You know, some people were talking about a hybrid version. I'm not even sure if if that's actually possible, but I heard it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Same here. There there was a lot of talk about that, and that really... uh, upset me a little because I just couldn't believe it. Like, I'm like, there's so many other things that we need to be concerned with versus just what is going to be done. Like, that's not, that's important as well. Um, sure. And, and before you know, we before we continue on the I-81, could you just unfold a little bit of backfield just for uh, those who are listening who may not live in the central New York area? Can you just kind of give the context of the I-81 project, please? Sure. Um, so, ID1 Viaduct is a major highway um, that was built back in the 
I want to say I forgot, I forget if it's the 50s or 60s, um, with the major Federal Highway Administration kind of um, trailblazing different highways that were said to have to, uh, that were said to make transportation easier for people to get in and out of cities into suburbs, to travel from state easier, to be able to transfer military supplies easier. This was um, the logic that was given federally. Um, Syracuse, we had ID1. That was our highway that went through, and also most of those highways went through um, black neighborhoods or foreign-born white neighborhoods. So we had ID1, and what ID1 did to us when we had it when we had it built back in the 50s and 60s is it pretty much destroyed a poor but thriving black community um, that was never able to be kind of put back together, um, and it caused some of the racial and economic segregation that persists today. It was uh, the ID1 highway in combination with redlining as well as urban renewal. So Syracuse is, in, or excuse me, Onondaga County, I believe is the ninth most segregated county in the entire country. Um, and the I-81 highway was a major part of that. So now they are saying that that highway is at the end of its useful life and we have to do something new with it um, for public safety reasons. Sure. So uh, <laughs> the federal government is going to give money and we know that within the next, you know, let's say three to ten years, who knows now with the pandemic, um, that something is going to be done to that highway. And as of right now, we're in trouble with it because the federal guideline, there was an executive order just signed that says that states do not do now do not have to consider uh, what residents in the area want or have to say or what their concerns are about construction on the project. Usually they would have to have this big comment period where everybody could come and they could give them their input and they could ask questions, they could share their concerns and things like that. Um, but now, because of the pandemic, there's been an executive order signed that says they don't have to do that. So we're very much in trouble because the state can kind of do whatever they want to do with the project. Um, and if we look at history and we looked at what was done before, we would hope that further, you know, further harm wouldn't be caused to the community. Right, certainly. And I'm glad that you mentioned in terms of, you know, from a historical standpoint, uh, how the first time... Uh, I guess the I-81 project was done. And basically, uh, for those listening, uh, decimated uh, an existing neighborhood, which was uh, primarily minority. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. And there are people to this day who, who live in the community and they still talk about the history and the experience that they had as a result of that, that um, process, which was a very, unfortunately, a very negative one. Uh, for those living in that community uh, at the time, and and really has not, really has not come back, I guess, from the results of of that process or the end results of of that construction in terms of a, a cohesive, uh, viable neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we would hope that you know this time. I think that you know for everyone who is listening. At this point in time, you can find countless, um, you know, articles and now just, you know, news and just different attention. If you just go on Google and you look up history, I-81, Syracuse, black neighborhoods, 
you will find endless information, right? So because of the buzz of everybody kind of coming back and talking about the project because it's going to be rebuilt, that kind of brought up the history, right? So people talked a lot about it. Um, When this happened, the current mayor that we have right now, Mayor Ben Walsh, his grandfather was the mayor of the city of Syracuse, and he actually um, led quite a bit of the charge to raise the black neighborhood. Um, the black people tr- tried very hard um, to stand up and kind of fight against it. They organized, they protested, they petitioned, they wrote letters, they marched, they did, they did every, they did all, they pulled out all the stops. There was a group called CORE um, that was organizing this, this thing that kind of went on. So you can, you can hear now, plenty about what happened and, and the tragedy and kind of this the devastation of what occurred to the black community with the first ID1 highway. What I think is cruel is that now it's like because there was a buzz, it's an over-acknowledgement of the history. I think that is very cruel for different leaders, relevant stakeholders, um, whoever, not just, and I'm not, I don't just mean elected officials, I mean any, any relevant stakeholder, to... Oh, it's like we're overly acknowledging what happened in the past. So we can say it. You know, that was harsh. It was cruel. It was terrible. It's had lasting effects. It's part of the reason why we're at the, at the point that we're at now. But in the same breath, I, I just think it's cruel to do that and not in the same breath do every single thing that we can in our power to right those wrongs. So I believe with the, you know, whatever is going to happen with the highway moving forward, whatever is done, that is a way to provide reparations to right the wrongs of what happened in the past. Now, do I have all the exact answers of how exactly we should do that? No, I think that should be a large collective community conversation. But I am upset at the lack of leadership in our community in bringing that conversation to the forefront and, again, doing everything that they can to have community members be involved, to be educated, and to have choice and to have agency um, in what happens and things that are going to affect their lives on such a large scale. Sure, sure. You know, in light of uh, this executive order that you you, uh, mentioned a few moments ago uh, that's just been handed down that kind of has taken a little bit of the... I, I guess, or could potentially take some of the momentum out of the attempts to not allow history to repeat itself again. Uh, in your estimation and in your opinion, how do we prevent history being repeated? I think that there are a ton of things that, that needs to be done. Um, I think that people should look to the work of the New York Civil Liberties Union here in the Syracuse area. They've been doing a lot around the ID1 issue in terms of a whole bunch of stuff. So they have formed a coalition with the Urban Jobs Task Force um, on the jobs piece of it, but they've also formed coalitions with other organizations to work on um, different pieces of it. And they have so they have co- created this collective list um, that different grassroots organizations, that different that community members, things that they have heard at forums leaders, just different things that would make the make the project fair. So there is big things like, let's say, what, what the Urban Jobs Task Force is looking for, which would be a community workforce agreement, project labor agreement. So that would basically say that the contract that the New York Department of Transportation is going to sign 
with most likely our labor unions is going to uh, maximize the potential for local hire in Syracuse, right? That's a big thing that we can do, um, right? However, they, the, the, what's in the documents that NICU have are small stuff, so, so, so little as Dr. King's school, which is right over there um, in the shadows of the highway, saying that we want to limit number of construction vehicles that can be over there around the school. We want to limit the proximity that they can be to the school. We want to limit, you know, the amount of time that they can be over there. You see what I'm saying? Um, so, right, so looking at the air quality of that area and where the kids are and trying to make sure that we cause the least detrimental impacts on them because of this construction that has to happen. See what I'm saying? So there's a right. bunch of things that can be done. Um, one of the things that people should definitely be paying attention to is that we don't regentrify. So Kenneth Jackson, um, who has um, Urban CNY, which is the media, his own media outlet, um, he wrote an article that said, you know, I hope that this is. It basically said, is this going to be Negro removal? No, because they called the first I-81. Um, an urban renewal combination. They called it Negro removal because that's just that's pretty much what it did in that area, right? Um, there, that was prime real estate. That was downtown Syracuse. So where we see the Justice Center now, the courthouse, the Everson Museum, all of those nice buildings and things like that. That black people once lived there, but right. they were removed right. so that. The, the city could have those amenities. So what we don't want to see is we don't. We also know that. So not, so there's a whole bunch of factors. But we also know that federally, the government um, is looking to defund, you know, or just kind of step back out of public housing. Right? It's not going to be sustainable anymore. They can't afford it in the way that it's been it's, it has been being done up until this point. So something different has to be done. So we know that not much more money is going to be given to the Syracuse Housing Authority for the public housing projects that are over there, that are right there in the ID1 shadow right now. So as a part of this ID1 rebuild plan, what we also see happening uh, parallel is the Blueprint 15 plan, mm -hmm. which is being put together by the Allen Foundation and different um, city community partners and i believe that what they're trying to do with that initiative is to provide some mixed income housing so that the area is not completely gentrified my worry and my concern with it that's the mission and that's what i've what i've heard repeatedly from those involved what my worry is and what my concern is is that nobody seems to have a plan as to how they're going to guarantee that that's not going to happen they're just saying we're, we're going to do our best. We're going to listen. We're going to take suggestions. We're going to do our best so that that doesn't happen. You know, the research that I've done on purpose-built communities um, in different cities have shown that, you know, the people that move back, while it does create a thriving community, there the people that move back are not the people that were there before. Um, and we want for the people that live there to be able to stay in their area. So if a great new housing is going to be put up where the public housing is right now. And we want for the people who live there now to be able to have access to that. Right, right, absolutely. And for, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, welcome to Conversations with B. Moore. I am your host, and my guest for today is Decca Dansel. Uh, she is the president of the Urban Jobs Task Force here in Syracuse, New York. And we're talking about uh, the I-81 project. 
I, I know that Ken Jackson has been somewhat critical, I guess, and I'm putting it mildly, of, of uh, the Blueprint 15. And I would agree with you in terms of, you know, your reflection, your thoughts on it in terms of intent and good intentions. We, we know what they say about good intentions. So, But is there a way to, to maybe keep their feet to the fire to, to make sure and ensure that they do what they're proposing to do? It's very hard because um, I think it's very hard because it's going to be private. You know, the Allen Foundation is a, is a you know, like they're privately funded. Like they can do whatever they want to do with their money. They don't have to wait for the community to say yes, we approve this. And clearly, they don't because it's already you know mo- moving ahead. So, um, I would say that you know I really think that the people that live in that neighborhood currently right now, those who live in the public housing, I believe that they need to be organized. And there are there have been several efforts to do that. And that is, I'm not going to say that they're not organized at all. There are several people there who are very engaged with this issue that have learned a lot over the past few years, that want to learn a lot more, that have been asking questions. But I think that everyone has, so first is that that group needs to be organized and then in a coalition with a larger community that we support them and that we uplift their voice the most because they're going to be the most affected. That's really important that we do that as a, as a community. Um, but then also that we're all asking, that we're all asking questions. So who, who are the leaders of Blueprint 15? Keep continuing to ask them the questions. How are you going to ensure that this neighborhood is not going to be gentrified? How are you going to ensure that we're not going to repeat history? Because as of right now, I hate to say it to you, Ryan, but everything that I'm seeing lining up is looking like we, we gonna, we're, we're going to see it happen all over again. And I just, I'm so concerned with that because with us having the highest concentration of poverty amongst minorities in the entire nation in Syracuse, we cannot afford to do any worse. Mm, yeah, yeah. We can't. We can't afford any more harm to us. We can't afford structural violence at this level. Hi, I'm Brian Moore, owner of More About You, the producer of conversations with yours truly, Be More. First, I'd like to thank you for listening to our program. But secondly, I'd like to call something to your attention. Just like my guest, I believe that many of you listening have incredible life stories to share. You see, More About You was started on the simple belief that everyone, and I mean everyone, has a story to tell. Unfortunately, many of those stories are lost and never shared nor passed down to future generations. More About You can help preserve those personal tales in ways that can be enjoyed in the present and also used to educate in the future. I invite you to go to my website, www.moreaboutyou.com, to see how I've done this for others. And you can call me at 315-863-2466 to discuss how I can do the same for you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, back to conversations. Decca, you know, I want to ask you a, a general question about organizing and organizing type of organizations working in collaboration and conjunction with other groups. And tell me about 
you know, some of the partnerships that you've built over time and what have been some of the keys of establishing and maintaining those partnerships? So I would say, so the Urban Jobs Task Force, we um, are actually an organization. We have organizational members as well as individual members. So like me, I'm, I am an individual member, but we have several different organizations, grassroots groups who are a part of us as organizational members. So for example, um, the Southwest Center or Syracuse Community Connections is an organizational member. YWCA is an organizational member. Peace Inc., um, CNY Solidarity, Syracuse Cultural Workers, the Peace Council. So I think right now we have about 20, I think 20 or 21 organizational members and then I think a little bit under 30 individual members. And I would say that two key relationships that we've had, at least in this ID1 organizing kind of struggles, ID1 campaign, will be first will be legal services um, of CMY. And how we got involved with them is, um, you know, we kind of met before they learned of our work and they agreed to allow one of their staff members who was their community organizer to serve as an advisor to the organization. So right now we have uh, Paul Ciavari who works at Legal Services of CNY and he serves as our advisor. So they are not an organizational member, but they're allowing their paid staff to help, right, because they believe that our mission falls in line with their mission. So Paul's been around for a couple of years. We also partnered with them to do our racial equity impact statement. So before we launched this campaign on ID1, we said if we're going to be out there arguing that people need to have jobs and people need to have access to these jobs, then we have to first prove that they don't have access. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we, us, in collaboration with Legal Services of CMY, did the first ever comprehensive study into the construction trades in central New York. And um, that can be found on our on our website can also be found on legal services of CNY's website and basically what it found what we already knew before going into the 18 months long research process was that um, a majority of workers on construction projects in this area were mostly white males who did not reside in the city of Syracuse right so we we were like first of all we want you know, we wanted to prove that there weren't a lot of minorities in the construction trades. And then we also wanted to prove that there were not a lot of local people in the construction trades because we want to maximize the hiring of local minorities on this project. And we believe that that's a way to kind of provide reparations for the past harm done. Um, and we actually brought a federal senator here to champion the Build Local, Hire Local Act, which says exactly that. We're trying to put that federal bill into law. So if federal bill were to pass, that would mean that 50% of the jobs at I-81 would be required to go to disadvantaged people in the city of Syracuse. Now, that that would be like a dream come true. <laughs> but, sure, sure. But there's still, right, there's still, um, that has not been passed yet. But I would say, so legal services of CNY, so we did that report with them, came, you know, came out with the results. We um, shared it with the entire community. We shared it with all local elected officials that are accountable to Syracuse, New York. And that was just a major, I guess it's a major boost and got people really seeing that, wow, this jobs piece is something we may need to pay attention to. Um, One of our recommendations 
after doing that report, so we came out with the Urban Jobs Task Force came out with a separate list of recommendations to address the disparities that we found in the report. And one of them was that we believe that the mayor of Syracuse should call together a big table of all the relevant stakeholders to see how we were going to be um, innovative in finding ways to maximize local hire because we know that because there's federal highway money tied to the project, you can't put geographical goals in it. So even if the New York State Department of Transportation wanted to, even if they were just willingly wanted to maximize local hire, they cannot, by law, they cannot go ahead and say 20% of the jobs on the I-81 project needs to go to local Syracuse City residents, whereas they may be able to do that on a project that was just that was just theirs and that it didn't need federal highway money. But because federal money is involved, the federal government looks at it like, well, this is everyone in the United States money, so therefore anyone in the United States should be able to work on anything that's being funded by their tax dollars. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, like I said, whereas a federal senator is saying, all right, that, you know, we, we, we get that thinking, but at this point in time, after so many people have been specifically targeted and harmed, one way that we're going to fix that is by specifically targeting them with opportunities for growth. Um, so I would say Legal Services of CNY, as well as the New York Civil Liberties Union, who um, I mentioned earlier, we formed a coalition on jobs. But then I would say that there are other there are grassroots groups, right? So places like Syracuse Cultural Workers and the CNY Solidarity Coalition, you know, may help us do, you know, they helped us get thousands of signatures on our petition, right? Help get some of this information out, helped us... Um, you know, go and knock on doors, uh, helps us table events. So working together with other community organizations is really key in getting exposure for your issue and then honestly being able to kill two birds with one stone. So whatever they have going on, you know what I mean, whatever you have going on can all be shared and talked about with the same group of people or the same individual saving time. Because as we know, organizing takes time. Mm-hmm. all capital letters absolutely absolutely so just back to that that analysis that was done how was that received how, how well was that received by the stakeholders you presented it to um they seemed very blown away so we did an event called building equity um at the marriott we had um the county executive showed up the mayor himself did not show up but he sent his whole team um we had representatives from several different state elected officials we had um the carpentry trades there. We had um, national partners, so institutions, so make places that teach trades like the SUNY EOC or OCC. Just a whole bunch of people, about a hundred, so about a hundred relevant stakeholders. So these were individuals who they had some relation, connection, tied to the construction industry in some way, shape, or form. That this information will be beneficial to them, as well as individuals who had the power to assist in our fight. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It, I, I felt like it was received very well. There were several, um, a whole bunch of media came, so I think we had about six news articles that went out um, afterwards about it. We had several follow-up interviews about it. People actually still call us to this day. Um, we actually were just reached out to by um, a national researcher in the construction industry. We're going to be talking to him soon, but we we have been reached out to from people in different states. We've been reached out to um, by colleges and universities. Um because of it, and I, I 
think that overwhelmingly what we just saw was people were like, man, like, you know, we didn't know it was this bad because it was a whole bunch of stuff that we found. The mayor did um, end up calling the ID1 big table. Um, so we are a part of that now. It's only met one time so far. But, yeah, I mean, the COVID stuff kind of just, just got everything waiting. But I think that it was received very well by everyone except, of course, the um, local construction trade. Even though we tried, we said multiple times in the in the report that you know this report is not being um, made to place blame on anyone. This is not to say that the construction trades are racist, that they're trying to exclude people or anything like that. It's just pointing out the facts. We also talked a whole bunch about the barriers of minorities and people who live in the city and people who are poor to being able to enter the construction trades because it is very hard. To, to do that when you have some of these barriers. It's not as easy. So it's not just about people intentionally trying to keep them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, it still pointed out, you know, several flaws. So I think um, they weren't so happy about that. But facts yeah. are facts. So they had to come out. You know, I, I want to shift gears here a little bit. As a final question, I'll ask you this. Describe the type of community that you're working towards having here in central New York and in this greater Syracuse area? Well, for one, um, I mean, there's there's multiple things. I think the most important is that people see the city of Syracuse as the heart of the county and that people understand that trickle-in economics is not working and that it's going to have to be trickle-out and that the city... The, the city, we're the heart. Like we, our economic vitality equals the economic vitality of the county. Um, so I think that the city has been beaten down for a long time, and we just don't have anything. While the county has has a lot. Um, so I would like to, I would like to eventually see a CNY community where the city of Syracuse has the same economic health as a Camillus, as a Fayetteville, as a, you know, I don't know, any of those any of those nice areas that they have out there, as a Manlius. And then secondly, I would like to see a Syracuse, and I was specifically talking about within our city limits, would be a city that's not so racially segregated, that's not so economically segregated, um, where everybody can enjoy the good parts of the city. You know, so me being a, a young professional, um, my life is very, it's very segregated still. I feel uncomfortable eating at Armory Square when I'm one of the few people of color that are able to just even go in there and afford to sit down at a restaurant and have a meal. Um, it, you know, it, it makes me feel like guilty almost. So I would like to see a city of where people, you know, I know that everybody can't have everything and I don't think that you know every person needs to have luxury and this and that but if you are a working contributing member of our community I don't care if you work at McDonald's I don't care you should not be struggling for your basic needs I would just like to see a city where people are not struggling um, and where there's equal access to opportunity and that is the main reason why I'm the president of Urban Jobs Task Force. I think it starts with economics. I think it starts with money. So, you know, I just I would just like to see a city where minorities have their same fair shake um, at opportunities and poor people as well have their same fair shake at opportunities 
as those in the dominant or privileged groups. All righty, all righty. Thank you for that, Decca. Um, my guest for today has been Decca Dansel, president of the Urban Jobs Task Force here in Syracuse. Uh, Decca, I wish you well in all of your endeavors. Uh, if people want to get engaged or find out more, I believe you mentioned the, the uh, there's a website that they can go to. Would you mention that mm -hmm. one more time, please? Mm -hmm. So we have a website, uh, www.ujtf.org, or you can message us on Facebook, Urban Jobs Task Force. Awesome, awesome. Well, Ducca, it's been a pleasure having you on my program today. I wish you well in all of your endeavors. You stay safe and just continue to, to fight the good fight. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you take care as well. Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.